Okay, the reading is from John, chapter 20, and it's found on page 1089. Chapter 20, starting at verse 1, on page 1089. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus turned to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening and happy Easter to you. Let me start off by asking you a question. What does Easter mean to you? Is Easter just some nice time off work, an extra long weekend? It's pretty nice. Is that what Easter is to you? Perhaps Easter is that chance to eat an unhealthy amount of chocolate, lots and lots of chocolate. I'm sure there are a few people here this evening who are feeling perhaps a little bit indigestion-y. I don't know. Perhaps Easter is a time where you can visit family and friends and spend some quality time with loved ones. Perhaps those are things that most uh, uh, Easter means to you. Maybe, though, Easter is a time where you can remember Jesus and how he rose from the dead. But so what? What difference does it actually make to you, to your lives? Does Jesus' resurrection actually affect your life at all? What does Easter mean? mean to you? Very serious question here. 
I wonder, if you could have any kind of egg in the world right now, what would it be? I wonder, would you go for a cream egg, Cadbury's cream egg, always a favourite? Maybe you would go for a mini egg, perhaps Thornton's finest chocolate egg. Well, how about uh, this egg here? This is a Fabergé egg, uh, and it was made in 1913, and it's worth a whopping nine and a half million dollars. I think I'd be pretty happy if I found that at the end of my Easter egg hunt. It'd be great. Well, here in this passage tonight that we'll be looking at today, we see what Easter is really all about as we discover a truth that is far more exciting than the prospect of time off work, a truth far more satisfying than all the chocolate in the world, a truth that brings happiness that's even better than our happiest and closest times with our family and friends. This is a truth that is far more precious than that Fabergé egg. This is the truth about Jesus' resurrection, and it really does matter, because it can change your life completely. Tonight we're carrying on our series of encounters with Jesus from John's Gospel. And this is the last encounter that we'll be looking at, and arguably the most significant. Here in John 20, we'll see Mary Magdalene's encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. And it's worth making clear at this point, just briefly, who Mary Magdalene uh, really was. There's a lot of really unhelpful and completely unfounded claims surrounding uh, who this woman was. Her relationship with Jesus was in no way romantic or sexual. She was not the Mary that we hear about who was a prostitute. Rather, in Luke chapter 8 and verse 2, we're told that she was uh, a woman who was possessed by seven, uh, seven demons, but was then completely healed uh, by Jesus. And it's in response to Jesus' acts of love and kindness that Mary follows Jesus. With the 12 disciples, there was also a group of women who followed Jesus, and Mary was one of those followers. Mary was last at the cross and first at the grave. She loved Jesus warmly. She loved Jesus warmly as a saved follower. That is who Mary was. And it's in this encounter between Mary and Jesus that we see a number of lives dramatically changed by this amazing truth. The truth of the resurrection of Jesus meant that, that the disciples went from confusion to belief in verse 1 to 10, and Mary went from despair to joy. Those are the two things that we see the resurrection of Jesus meant. But before we jump ahead of ourselves and skip to the really good bit, we need to work out the who, what, where, when, and why of these verses. In the chapter preceding our passage, we see Jesus' crucifixion. And in order to fully understand the significance of the resurrection, we need to fully understand that Jesus was fully dead. Jesus had been beaten up, whipped, scourged, had thorns rammed into his head, nails driven through his hands and his feet, and he suffocated there on the cross. 
And in verse 33 of chapter, nine, uh, of chapter 19, we read, But when they, they the Roman soldiers, came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Jesus was dead. There's no refuting this. Jesus was completely dead. And in the last part of chapter 19, we hear that Jesus is buried in a tomb. And from other gospel accounts, we know that a stone was rolled over the entrance there, and there was a seal put on the stone, and soldiers posted to guard it. And that seems to be it, doesn't it? The end of Jesus' ministry. We've seen from uh, John's account all the amazing things that Jesus has said and done. We've seen in our encounters with Jesus that Jesus knew Nathaniel, one of his disciples, before he even met him. We've seen that Jesus tells Nicodemus that eternal life can only be found by being born again. The Samaritan woman sees that Jesus knows everything there is to know about her and Jesus offers her true satisfaction and eternal life. And from the encounter with Mary, Martha, and subsequently Lazarus, their brother, we see that Jesus is the giver of life who defeats even death. From Jesus' uh, first miracle at the wedding, where he turned a huge amount of water into really good wine, we saw that he was bringing in the promised kingdom. And last week, from Jesus' encounter with the corrupt and fearful Pontius Pilate, we saw that Jesus was the source of truth. But now as we come to the end of John's Gospel and the end of this series, has it all been for nothing? If Jesus is dead and buried, then he's just another man. And all the claims that he made in those encounters, well, they fall down completely, don't they? They don't stand up. How can he claim to have power over death if he can't even keep himself alive? How can he offer eternal life when his own life has been cut so short? Well, if that was it, how would you feel? Confused? Bitterly disappointed? Perhaps you'd be despairing, and rightly so. Well, hold on to those feelings, because that's exactly how the disciples uh, and followers of Jesus were feeling in our passage today. They've seen their teacher, friend, and Lord killed and buried, and now they're lost and afraid. And it's into this desperate situation that we read these verses. It's uh, early in the morning, and it's still dark, and Mary Magdalene goes to visit the tomb. But to her amazement, the sealed and guarded stone has been removed from the entrance. What's going on? Well, she goes to get help running to the disciples, to Peter and to John, who refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And in verse 2, we see Mary's message to them. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. And this message indicates that she thinks the tomb has been plundered, that either grave robbers or the authorities have taken away the body of Jesus. 
graves being robbed and bodies being removed was a common problem at that time in that part of the world. So much so that shortly after this period in history, at some point in the middle of the first century, the Roman Emperor Claudius made a decree that was uh, since been called the Nazareth Inscription, and it can be seen in uh, the Louvre in Paris. In this decree it states, you are absolutely not uh, to allow anyone to move those who have been entombed, but if someone does, I wish that violated to suffer capital punishment under the title of tomb breaker. So we know that grave robbery and bodies being taken from tombs was quite a common occurrence. Common enough for the emperor of Rome to make a law against it. It's hardly surprising then that Mary reacts in this way, discovering the empty tomb. And it's in response to her message that uh, their Lord's body had been taken, that Peter and John share in Mary's alarm and run to the tomb. John wins the race. I quite enjoy the detail here of John, the gospel writer, saying here that he beat Peter in the race. But John wins the race and gets there first, and he observes the cloths lying there in the tomb. But he doesn't go in. Peter being Peter, well, he goes straight in, uh, after he arrives on the scene. And he too sees the strips of linen lying there. He sees Jesus' empty grave clothes. And in verse 8 we're told that John eventually goes into the tomb as well. And what he sees there causes him to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Look at the end of verse 8. He saw and believed. John goes from confusion and fear to belief. But what is it that he sees there that causes such a dramatic change in John? Well, for John, it was seeing the linen clothes and the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, lying there, undisturbed, as though Jesus' body had simply passed through them, in much the same way that we know Jesus would later uh, do when appearing to the disciples in a locked room. John Stott vividly states that the tomb clothes were like a discarded chrysalis from which the butterfly had emerged. And in contrast to this, remember Lazarus, who we saw in one of our previous encounters in John 11, where we read, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Here we see that Lazarus was merely restored to physical life and so had to be freed from his grave clothes. But Jesus, well, he left his grave clothes behind as he took on his new resurrection body. And this isn't some ghostly half-life that Jesus was in, some wispy spirit. No, this, this was his new body that was more solid than ours, more solid than the grave clothes that he was wrapped in, more solid than the walls that he would later walk through. This is Jesus' resurrection body of the new creation. And it's this that John sees. And it's what he doesn't see in the tomb, Jesus himself, that causes him to believe. The tomb is empty. 
And belief is one of the key themes in this gospel. If you just turn over the page in your Bibles to John 20, verse 31, we see that John has written his eyewitness account so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. From confusion and doubt to belief. See the empty tomb and believe that Jesus is the risen Christ, the Son of God. In a world full of cynicism and doubt, a society of no absolutes, a culture where definitive truths are seen as arrogant and bigoted, in all of that, look to the empty tomb and see the truth there. Read John's eyewitness accounts and know with certainty that Jesus is the risen Son of God. We can believe. But secondly, in verse 11 to 18, we see the dramatic change that the resurrection brought in Mary's life from despair to joy. After the two disciples have returned to where they're staying, Mary remains outside the tomb. And there she cries. She weeps. This is too much for her. The loss of Jesus' body is the last straw. Her teacher and Lord has been tortured and killed, and now even her mourning for Jesus is violated. His body has been taken. She knows complete despair. The one who loved her and saved her is no more, and she can't even mourn for him. And she weeps as she looks into the tomb again. And in verse 11, we're told that there are now two angels there where Jesus once lay. And they ask Mary, why are you crying? And from her answer, we see that she still thinks that Jesus' dead body has been stolen. They have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. And before the angels can respond to her, before Mary can reflect on the fact that there are now two angels in the tomb, she turns around and sees Jesus. But she doesn't yet realize it's him. And in verse 15, Jesus asks the same question as the angels. Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And thinking that this man was the gardener, uh, who might know where his body had been moved to, or perhaps had moved his body himself, she asks, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. She's clutching for some hope in her complete despair. In her hopelessness, she longs to be able to mourn for her Lord. She's in utter despair. But that all changes when, in verse 16, Jesus says just one word. Mary. Jesus calls her by her name, Mary. This is the good shepherd calling his sheep. Back in John chapter 10, where Jesus is teaching, he says, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. Here, Jesus is the good shepherd. And he calls Mary by name. And Mary listens 
to his voice. Where previously she didn't recognize him, she now turns back and cries out, Rabboni, teacher. It's such a beautiful scene. It's such a happy moment. Mary's world of complete despair has now been utterly transformed to one of perfect joy. Her Lord lives. Her own dear teacher is alive. Jesus is risen. Mary rejoices at her risen Lord and falls at his feet, clings onto him. He's real. But there's one final thing for us to notice from this wonderful account. And this is really mind-blowing. Because in verse 17, Jesus gently disentangles himself from Mary, stating, do not hold on to me. Why? Because I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary is commissioned by Jesus to deliver this good message back to the other disciples. And what a ridiculously good message it is. Look at it closely with me. Did you see what Jesus said there? Your Father, your God. Jesus is saying here that his heavenly Father is the disciples' heavenly Father too. Numerous times throughout John's Gospel, we've seen Jesus referring to God as the Father and my Father. But now, amazingly, we see Jesus stating here that he is our Father too. God is now our Father too. This is because on the cross, Jesus took all our sins, everything we have done wrong, everything that we will do wrong, that separates us from God completely. God who is perfect and holy. And Jesus took those things onto himself and gave us in return his perfect life, his perfect obedience to God. What a terrible deal that is for Jesus. And what an amazing exchange it is for us. And it was only Jesus, the perfect son of God, who could do this for us. It was only Jesus who had the power over life and death. And it's only Jesus who could rise from the dead. And because of his resurrection, well, it means we can now uh, know that we can be with God. We can now know that we can be adopted by God and we can have him as our heavenly father. This was Jesus' purpose in coming to earth, to give us a new restored relationship with God. And it's because of all this that Jesus is able to refer to his disciples as brothers. Did you see that in verse 17? Go instead to my brothers. They are now brothers with Jesus as fellow sons of God the Father. And in response to all that Mary has seen and heard, she goes and tells the others the wonderful news. I have seen the Lord. The resurrection means that if you and I believe and trust in Jesus, then we can be sons and daughters of God. We can know the almighty, the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the all-loving creator of the universe as our own father. Through Jesus, we are adopted into God's own family. Just think about that for a moment. We're adopted 
into God's own family. Sitting here this evening, whatever you've done, thought or said, whatever this past week has looked like for you, if you know Jesus, then you are part of God's family. God the Father has adopted you as his own. And in response to this news, how can we do anything else other than do what Mary does and tell others about it? Now, I don't want to make go out and evangelize one of the application points here from this message. I shouldn't have to. It's who we are that will define what we do. And if we know Jesus, and if you know Jesus as your risen Lord and Savior, then who we are will have dramatically changed. Who we are will have dramatically changed. Behind me is, I don't know where you can see it, this is my birth certificate with various details. It's Stephen Sweet, born in Swindon back in 1992, various other details like that. That's my birth certificate. That's who I am. It helps identify who I am, where I was born, who my parents were, etc. But those things, those things no longer are what primarily identify me. Now I'm Stephen Sweet, adopted child of God. That's who I am. And that truth will change my life completely and can change your life completely too. Having God as your Father and Jesus as your resurrected Lord will permeate every part of your life. Jesus as resurrected Lord meant that the disciples went from confusion to belief and Mary went from despair to joy. What will it mean for you? If he is Lord, then it means he will be Lord of how you speak, of the jokes that you make at work and at college, Lord of the things that you watch even when no one else is around, Lord of how you prioritise your time in regards to when you speak with God, when you read his word, when you pray to him. Jesus is the risen Lord of all of your life. And our life should be screaming out who Jesus is and what he's done for us. If we're responding rightly to what we've seen here in John, then I won't need to tell you, go out and evangelize. It's who we are. So, what does Easter mean to you? We've seen that the lives of the disciples and of Mary were dramatically changed, completely changed by the resurrection of Jesus. And perhaps you're confused about who Jesus really is, what Christianity is really all about, ultimately whether or not there is a God. Perhaps tonight you're despairing, you're feeling hopeless, because for one reason or another we live in a broken world. Well today, this very evening, look at the empty tomb See the risen Lord Jesus and know the truth. Encounter Jesus like Mary. Go from confusion and despair to belief and joy as an adopted child of God. This is good news. This is the best news. This is the truth. How could we do anything else 
other than accept Jesus as our risen Lord and tell others of this amazing truth. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so, so much that you sent your Son to this earth to make us right with you again, to bring us back into a perfect relationship with you as our Heavenly Father. We thank you so much for this wonderful and personal truth. Help us, if we've forgotten that truth, to see it again anew this evening, to see the empty tomb, to hear the words of Jesus, that you are now our Father and our God. And Father, I pray that if there is anyone here this evening who doesn't know that truth for themselves, who doesn't know the truth of your risen Son, then I pray that you will help them to see that for the first time tonight. And I pray, like the disciples and like Mary, you will dramatically change their lives. From confusion and despair to complete uh, joy and a solid belief in you and what you've done for us. We thank you for all of these things through your risen Son who has saved us. Amen.